Hello, it's Jim. I'm here with Eric Lonergan, multi-asset fund manager at M&G and Mark Blythe, political economist at Brown University. They've just released Angrynomics, which I think is probably the best name of a book um, I've heard for a very long time. Kind of tells you everything that it's about just in the title. Uh, today it was announced it's on Martin Wolf, the, the Genius FT Writer's Book of Summer Reading Lists for 2020. And it kind of captures the, the rage that we've seen around uh, Trump, Brexit, Black Lives Matter, the Gilets Germs, and links it towards economics and also towards some of the solutions to what we can do to solve that going forwards. So I'm going to start with you, Eric. Um, the title of the book is kind of almost self-explanatory, but you talk about two different types of anger, um, moral outrage and tribal anger. Can you, can you explain what you mean by that and how that links in with the themes of the book? Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting about the, the theme of anger, and neither Mark nor I are psychologists, um, is we kind of had a view of political economy about what was going on in the world, and we wanted to write a book about it. But then at one point, Mark sort of said, what do we make of anger itself? And we so, sort of scratched our heads and thought, well, anger is something we're all familiar with. You know, Children know what anger is, but we're very inarticulate when it comes to anger. So, so if you say to most people, what are the four types of anger or what function does anger serve? Is there good anger? Is there bad anger? Private and public anger. We're actually surprisingly inarticulate. And, and so we read lots of literature and, and there's loads written on anger and moral philosophy and neuroscience and social psychology, self-help books. Um, but nowhere really that we could find is there a sort of clear synthesis. So you've got this very diverse field of study, all of which or most of which tends just to assume we know what anger is. And one thing that in moral philosophy that came through very clearly, and this dates all the way back to Aristotle, is the idea of moral outrage, is that anger is a response to injustice. Now, most people get that. And I think that's probably the most commonly referred to when people go, it's obvious why people are angry. So moral outrage is one very important dimension of it. It's, it seems to serve a kind of evolutionary function of enforcing our moral norms. For some reason, we get angry if we see acts of injustice occurring. But then the other key moment was we did a big data search using Watson Analytics, just searching through news stories by anger. And the second most common type of anger to come up was angry fans. Right? You know, you go to football matches. As soon as you say that to anyone who goes to a football match, you immediately go, of course, angry fans. But when you start to reflect on it, you go, why on earth do is that this minority of usually young men, actually men of all ages, who get really, really angry at fans. And I started then watching them. Whenever I went to a football match, I was like fascinated. What are these guys doing and why? You know? and, and one thing I realized is they also regulate their own. So there's a big element of I'm more loyal than you. And that's more interesting. We all assume they're going to attack the opposition. But what's interesting is they regulate the identity of their own group. So that gave us these two types of anger. It was a kind of critical moment in, in, in forming our ideas is that you have moral outrage, which is a kind of legitimate moral response, which Aristotle views as kind of appropriate. And then you have this, the anger of tribes, which is purely about identity. And if you look at the history of it, is a precursor to violence and war. So, so that was the first big kind of distinction. So... I guess moving on from that then, Mark, um, you've got moral outrage and you've got tribal anger. And so on the moral outrage side, 
you know, incomes have been stagnant for 40 years for many households, especially in America, but in most of the, the G7. And capitalism has kind of won over labor, trade unions less powerful. So there is some real moral outrage and anger about that kind of inequality argument. And then there's also the kind of tribal anger, which is cynical exploitation of identity and culture wars. And one of the, the headings in your book is a quote from Nigel Farage saying something like, look at the anger, look at the fear. So how much of what's going on in the world is legitimate anger and how much is tribal anger? How do you, how do you break it down? Well, they're both there at the same time. And it's not for us to judge who's morally right and who's not. What's interesting is when you get a character like Trump. So Trump comes along and has a gut feeling for how this works. So he's able to walk into those five northern states, Michigan, Wisconsin, etc. The Democrats think they've got them signed up. They're celebrating Obama and blah, blah, blah. And of course, there are millions of Trump signs pointed up everywhere. And what was the one thing that we saw in those Trump rallies? Anger. And it wasn't just a visceral sort of like freaking out anger. It was a desire to be heard. It was a claim for recognition. And he was able to do that. So he was able to harness someone's subjective feeling of moral outrage about being ignored, about being asset stripped, about being basically defenestrated financially by coastal elites. And then he could just walk down to the southern border and immediately turn on Mexicans as rapists and invaders and all the rest of it and weaponize the other side of this, which is the in-group, out-group tribalism in a different way. So if you think about it, moral outrage in a way also rests upon the notion that there's an other. That other can be coastal elites, it can be Wall Street, it can be whoever you want to weaponize it against. So in a sense, it has a core of tribalism to it, but the claim to virtue is very, very different. And what politicians like Trump do and what populism does both on the left and right in very different ways is to identify what the problem is, what it is not, who is to blame, how do we solve it, all of which basically is about weaponizing and instrumentalizing anger in one way or another. So I guess in the UK, it felt like we had a series of almost technocratic governments where we we're very centrist and there was none of this. We, we didn't talk about race in the way that we do today. We didn't talk about immigration and so forth. And uh, you know, some people have sent this back to the uh, Gordon Brown, that bigoted woman moment as being quite yes. important. in, in oh, And the British jobs for British workers moment, which he also did, absolutely. Yeah, so do you think that, uh, so what's your view on kind of technocratic centrist governments as a solution to this? Or do they just kind of store up the problem and enable it to explode more down the line? That's exactly it. They're a volatility constraint. I mean, the whole point of politics, as Anna, Hannah Arendt put once very well, is to have moral arguments. They're not just about the most efficient means to get to a goal upon which we all presume we agree. We're actually meant to argue about the ends. And those ends are not set as facts. They are moral questions. And what technocracy did was to try, if you think about nudging people into better behavior, if you think about delegating all responsibility to central banks so that politicians are sitting around largely tweeting about how bad paedophilia is, as if someone's going to disagree with this, right? They are governing less and less at the same time that the needs for governance and the needs for discussion is actually growing. So what you do is you create through technocracy a massive volatility constraint. And ultimately, all vol constraints have to fail. And what you see in this cracking up of the vol constraint is the rise of populist and other forms of anger. Okay, so that's that's the problem that we face right now. We're also faced with a world where 
finance has changed, economics has changed beyond all recognition. And, you know, talking about the Martin Wolf book earlier, um, book list rather, one of the other books he talks about is the deficit myth, the idea that things have changed and we can print money and we're at the zero bound or we have negative interest rates. And Eric, I know it's something you're, you're quite interested in, the fact that negative interest rates do give governments a solution to a lot of the problems that the world face right now. I think so, Jim. You, as you know, you know, you and I have been talking about this probably for years, if not for longer. And um, you know, I still think I think finally it's breaking through to political consciousness. Because so the way I would impart, inter, interpret the rise of anger as a sort of political ideology is that you got this technocratic vacuum, and, and enlightened politics is ultimately about having real ideas and sets of beliefs that can motivate people to vote. I mean, that is critical, is what actually causes people to care about their politics. And I think there has been a huge lack of big motivating ideas. Now, the interesting thing is there is shared belief about some objectives, like the environment. You know, that cuts across the political spectrum, if you look, say, in the UK. But, it, but, but people don't seem to have a clear way through there's no clear set of policies. And, and, to, and in a sense, I'm just pointing out, or in the book we just point out, what, what to someone like you, Jim, is blindingly obvious. If the government can borrow at negative real interest rates for 30 years, purely doing a present value discounted cash flow means any investment spending they do with a positive real return actually creates value to the state's balance sheet. And all we're, so, so this is a huge opportunity. So, so whilst I think there are lots of things to be worried about, in one way, we're incredibly lucky because we have this extremely low level of real interest rate structures, which means we should be able to do lots of investment spending. And it's to try and about the, the creation of sovereign wealth funds and so forth to pay for future spending. Well, I think also the idea of a sovereign wealth. So we, we kind of think there's a consensus that we need to make growth sustainable. We need to tackle inequality and we need to shorten the duration and severity of recessions. Those are kind of self-evident objectives, right? I think only fringe lunatics don't, don't subscribe to them, right? But the problem is, what are the policies attached to each one of those? And I think we think you can use dual interest rates. We should be using both targeted lending, like the central, like the TFS scheme in the UK, the Teltros, the Fed could use its balance sheet to incentivize sustainable investment in, in the energy sector. But also, we could use debt-financed acquisition of assets by the state to set up sovereign wealth funds. So we could view negative real interest rates as analogous to discovering oil. And at some point in the future, if you generate excess returns like an endowment, you can repay the debt and you could distribute ownership in that wealth fund in those parts of society that don't have assets. So it's a kind of potentially cross-party innovative way of tackling inequality that really is viable. And in a sense, has been shown to be to work. You know, if you look at the Norwegians, they've generated a 6% return over the best part of 20 years. But whereas our sovereign state? wealth fund, you know, we discovered the same oil and we used it to give tax cuts that ended up people buying avocado colored bathroom suites that ended up in landfill, uh, never to be seen again. So, uh, yeah. In defense, of avocado, in defense of avocado bathroom suites, I do have an avocado colored shower. So I resemble that remark. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll let you have the final word then, Mark. Um, so how can you put the angry populist genie back in the bottle? What does history tell us about how these episodes end? Do, do they end 
in anything other than war or hyperinflation and disaster? Is, is there a kind of political answer to this that you think yes, is plausible? There is, and Eric's just outlined some of it. I mean, essentially, if you can borrow at negative real rates, if you can generate uh, a huge chunk of national income and distribute it as common wealth, you really can make a difference in people's lives and life chances, then that changes the whole possibility space. I mean, there's a problem that historians admit to, but they always admit to in the footnotes, which is the old uh, Greek thing about you can never stand in the same river twice because it's not the same river. So whether it's you're harking back to the 1930s or some prior episode of breakdown, the very fact that we've been there means that you can't go there. It has changed the conditions of the future. What we need now, and this is what I, I think it really is worth saying, in previous episodes, if you think of the 1930s, if you think of the 1970s, there were problems, and then there were politicians who were really committed. And they were committed to doing things, but they were also committed to a set of ideas. Now we have the worst of all possible worlds. We have a bunch of careerists who used to work in television, who know about marketing, who have the political courage of an empty beer can, and basically treat ideas as sort of disposable things that they can latch onto and abandon. So there are plenty of good ideas around just now. The problem is the lack of political courage and the depth of political capital and leadership that's willing to actually take a chance and do things. And that's our fundamental problem. It's not the populists. It's the mainstream centre's timidity in actually addressing the problems that the populists are correctly identified. Brilliant. Mark, Eric, thank you very much. Really interesting. Uh, congratulations on a brilliant book. Cheers. Thank you, Jim. Cheers.